Shall we look to the Lord in prayer? We thank you, Father. Oh, Lord. Yes, only you can rescue us, O Lord. Only you can save, O Lord. Did we in our own strength confide our striving will be failing? We're not the right man by our side. The man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Shabaoth, his name, and H to H the same. And he must win the battle. And Lord, you have won the battle. You have conquered the sin and the grave. You have conquered every power of darkness. And therefore, we can sing, O Lord. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And one little word will fell him. Thank you, Lord, for this assurance that you have given to us. And thank you, Father, for an opportunity once again that we could come to your house this evening on the middle of the work week to be able to sit around your word, to sit at your feet and to learn of you. Speak to us and teach us by your spirit. Oh, Father, we pray and cry out with Peter. Where else can we go, O Lord? You and you alone have the words of life. Therefore, teach us. Teach us the words of life. Father, quicken us by your spirit. Write your law in the deepest parts of our heart and cause us to walk in your ways. We thank you for this time. We give you glory. Anoint us this evening. Afresh this evening. Anoint us, O Lord, to speak and to hear. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Bring everyone who is on the way safe. Take, remove every tiredness from our bodies, O Lord. I rebuke the spirit of slumber and distraction in the name of Jesus. Grant us inclining ears, O Lord. Willing hearts. Thank you. We praise you. We worship. In Jesus' name. Amen. In light of what we heard on Sunday, I've titled today's uh, message as uh, Ox or Donkey in God's House. Ox or Donkey in God's House. And we've been learning from the life of Peter, right? Peter. Um, yeah, Peter. We'll be, we learn from the life of Peter from Matthew chapter 16 and how Jesus rebuked him. It's recorded twice in the New Testament, in the New Testament. Once in Matthew chapter 16 verse 23, it says, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Again, in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, uh, Jesus, it's reiterated, okay? When the, when the Holy Spirit records it twice, we need to really pay attention. But he turned around and looked at his disciples, and he specifically rebuked Peter. And of course, through Peter, he rebuked his disciples, and all of us as well. Alright, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And we learned three lessons. The negatives of Peter, which I just want to reiterate, which I, I mean, it was a powerful, it, it, it spoke to my heart. I don't know how much, it really profoundly, and it did speak to quite a number of you. I mean, I was speaking to some of you after the message um, on Sunday. What we learned, and what we were admonished and encouraged is that, uh, warned rather as to how Peter drifted. The way Peter drifted was he disagreed with the word of God. And then he became proud and overconfident. And at, at last he uh, followed Jesus from a distance. And this is how he drifted. Three steps. We looked at proud and overconfident. God had to crush that in Peter. I heard um, Chuck Swindle, if I'm right, uh, Chuck Swindle quoting Alan Redpath. He said, he says, a very powerful statement he makes. He says, when God wants to do, do an impossible task, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and he crushes him. 
That is how he accomplishes his work. Okay. And all of us invariably at different points, at different areas, we are being crushed. We are being humbled. We are being given opportunities, rather, let me put it that way. We, we are given, we have been given opportunities to humble ourselves. God is creating situations in our lives where He's crushing us, where He's, where He's, um, where He's exposing us in different areas, and He's saying, will you humble yourself? Because there's one thing that we need to do, by the way. God can humble you. That'll be really, really painful. And if you really want to be wise, humble yourself. That's the easy way. And I just want to specifically look at this particular thing, you know. Uh, Amos chapter 3 verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And what did the first thing Peter did was he disagreed with God. You need to understand, agreeing with God. Uh, uh, Derek Prince has a two-hour teaching on agreeing with God at different levels. He's powerful teaching. Agreeing with God. You have to agree with God at four levels. You have to agree with His objectives. You have to agree with the, with His priorities. You have to agree with His with His likes and dislikes, and you have to agree with His categories. And I don't want to get into the details of it. Agreeing with God has to happen at different levels. And I want to just look at few uh, what 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 it principally, in a sense, what what does it mean to agree with God? Agreeing with God means. To change according to God's ways. God will not change. I mean, we heard that from this pulpit several times. We have to change. Why? Psalm 119 verse 18. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in the heaven. It's not going to change. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. For I am the Lord. I do not change. And if you think that is old covenant... Look at what it says in New Covenant in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8. It says Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. So God cannot change. Why cannot God change? Why? Why should he not change? Why? Because any change has to be for the better and God is perfect. How can you (laughs) better perfect? It is not more perfect and most perfect. There's nothing like those superlatives don't exist. You see, God has to change for the better, and He's He's like nobody else. He's holy. He's He's cut above the rest. He's absolutely perfect. His ways are beyond our ways, and what we need to do to do, therefore, is to we we need to find out what His ways are and what His thoughts are, and we have to change accordingly. And uh, how high are His ways, and how Unreachable are his paths. And Isaiah chapter 55 will say, very interesting verse in chapter uh, 55 verses 8 onwards, it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens, it's just not one heaven, heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So how do we change? If it is so high that we cannot reach them, how do we change? The only way we can change is when they come down from heaven to us. You see? And how does God bring His ways and His thoughts to us? Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 onwards, He specifically tells us as to how God brings His ways and His thoughts to us. It says in verse 10 onwards, For as the rain comes down, okay, and the snow from heaven. Two metaphors being used. Rain and snow. From heaven. They have to come down. And do not return back. But water the earth. And make it bring forth and bud. That it may give seed to the sower. And bread to the eater. It satisfies us. God gives us his word. Like rain and snow. Which is more easy. Rain or snow. Any ideas? Okay, we all people from Hyderabad, we have never seen snow. Okay, I'll tell you something, something about snow, okay. Uh, if you go to North America and one of the countries in the, closer to the temperate zone and the Arctic zone, you'll find six months of the year it's winter. Almost close to six months of the year. And when it begins to snow, snow falls like snowflakes 
and it looks very beautiful. Okay, the first snow, and then it settles down, and the temperature is still zero degrees and negative, actually more than less than zero. So the the snow does not melt. Yeah. Okay, and then again it snows. And then again it snows, and again it snows, and again it snows, and again it snows, and keeps on snowing through the year. You have a fine hard crust which is formed over the surface of the of the ground. I mean, I, I'm sure if you were you were in Bhutan for several years, you know what I'm talking about, right? Absolutely crust, crust, solid. Has the earth absorbed it? No, it's still unmelted on the surface of the of the earth and it becomes a very hard crust and let me tell you something sometimes the word of God is like a hard crust it takes time for it to sink and when does it sink when the grace of God shines over your life and melts the water the snow and then you know what actually the snow water is much more better for the ground than the rain water that is how it, it is. It says both rain and snow. So if, if you find the word of God hard and it's not sinking, it's become a hard crust on your surface. Wait. Don't quit. Okay, sometimes it might be very, very tough for on you. I mean, for many of us, for sure. You see? But what happens over a period of time, if you're patient, allow time, okay? Let, th- let the seasons change. Let the, 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 let the Look forward to to spring and to 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 summer. You know, in in Canada, we used to. Oh boy, I used to hate snow. It's not as beautiful as you think it is. All right, only it's good for the pictures, but not to live around. Okay, so then he says, "So shall my word that comes forth from my mouth." So God sends His word like snow and like rain. Some easy to grasp and absorb. Some difficult to grasp and absorb. But ultimately, of course, we know who was this word who came from heaven in the New Testament, right? We know him. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 51 and 58. It says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. God has to come down. The word had to become flesh. And he had to dwell among us. And we had to behold the glory. Unless God showed us how that word word could have been lived out among us, we would never have known the ways and the thoughts of God. And finally, continuously change your mind and you change your heart according to God's ways and God's thoughts. Paul will say, I have the word of Christ, the mind of Christ. He doesn't say, I have the mind of Christ. He says, we have the mind of Christ. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You see, that is how we change. And that is the reason why we are here. Every week, we, we, we come and listen to the word of God so we can align our thoughts and change. So, I just want to look at how we agree therefore. What are the principles or the characteristics of the person who agrees with God? And how can we uh, inculcate and develop those characteristics in our heart step by step every day of every day in our lives and by the way there is a donkey in each one of us we know it for sure right garida you know, one of the one of the one of the <laughs> one of the famous telugu admonitions where parents uses ore garida okay what is he trying to say garida means Okay, actually the Bible uses another interesting word, Kanchare Gadada. That's even more interesting. We will try to understand what it is. How do we come become, from donkeys? How do we become oxes? Okay, try to see, understand what it means. First of all, you want to agree with God. First thing, I mean, there's a principle in, in, in the Bible. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey. Together, I have found a very interesting animation in the in the in, in the in the in the in the internet. Look at what it says. No, a donkey and a pl- and an ox. This plow ain't big enough for the two of us. Says the donkey. You know what does the ox say? Just shut up and <laughs> pull. You see, you see, everybody has an opinion. That is the donkey. Ox, on the other hand. Says, shut up and. Now tell me, which is more powerful, the donkey or the ox? Isn't it interesting? 
Oh, by the way, when um, this principle of ox and donkey is expounded in the New Testament, and you know which verse is that? Anybody knows that? Second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. This is the expounding of what does it mean not to put an ox and donkey together. Okay? This is what Paul has to say to the Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what? Fel- yoked. Okay? For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? Look at the, look at the rich tapestry of thought that he's trying to put across when, when, when he's trying to unpack what it means to be yoked. Okay. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with the temple of idols? Or, or rather with idols. For you are the temple of the living God as God has said. You see? So what does it mean to be unequally yoked? I just want to look at some interesting characteristics of an ox. Ox. Strength under control. Understand that? Incredible strength under absolute control. A willingness to submit and take correction. Give it two shots. You know, that's the reason why in Telugu there's a very interesting saying. Manchi manishiki oka mata manchi edduki oka dabba. What does it mean? For a good man, one word is enough. For a good ox, one shot is enough. That's what it means. You see? Uh, <laughs> you see, when you, you you speak, some people are really sensitive to correction. Yeah. It's a very interesting saying. Chuck Swindle preached a series on uh, the book of James. And one of the series had an interesting title. It's uh, found on, in, it's an exposition of James chapter 3 on wisdom. Uh, the title of the message was, The Wise, the Unwise, and the Otherwise. Okay, <laughs> a very interesting person. Look at, look, at, look at what he says. I mean, I found it very, very interesting. Follow it carefully. A wise person is the one who is willing to change, to alter his life in keeping with the truth. He is obedient. It is not how high is your IQ, it is not how keen is your sense of humor, etc. Which we like, like, like a lot, right? Intelligent people, they're very attractive. It's not, it's not that at all. That's not wisdom. Intelligence is not wisdom. But then you know what he says? Fantastic, powerful statement. He says, it's how much change regularly takes place so that his life patterns with the truth. That is a wise person. Change regularly taking place. How many of us are regularly changing? You know, there's a, if you find, uh, I mean, uh, how many of you watch cricket? For those of you who watch cricket, uh, and if you really want to win a match, you know, and if you are the bowling team, and you have very few runs on the board, the commentators use a very interesting phraseology. What do they say? We have to take Wickets, somebody, at regular intervals. <laughs> you see, so we have to take wickets. That if you really want to win the match, we have to consistently, regularly keep on taking wickets. And I'm telling honestly, if you really, really are a wise person, there is a constant, regular change in your life that is happening every day. And it is tangible, some tangible, some not very obvious. It's internal. What is he? What does it mean? He's, uh, I just put this, he is continuously willing to take what? Feedback. Okay. Feedback. Where is that pointer, please? Somebody can give, can you give me that pointer? I'm going to do a small experiment which I learned just a few days back. In fact, yesterday. Uh, some of them, they're there. Oh yeah, thank you, thank you. Just quickly, quickly. I thought it would, it would it would be there, but anyways, no problem. So, you see, seen this bullseye, right? How many of you, how many of you saw that? Saw this before? Okay, how many of you saw it before? How many of you saw this in the church? Yeah, you saw it. When 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 was it shown in the church? 
on the night, 31st night. Okay. Right? We, we, the, the idea is to hit the bullseye. Okay. So yesterday, this guy who came from, from Russia, okay, from Russia, he, he is an ex-KGB guy, okay? Smart fellow. He, he made an, a small experiment. He said, he called three, three, uh, volunteers. He said, please come. He said, please look at the bullseye. And he gave us a pointer, like this. Look at the bullseye. And one volunteer came, looked at the bullseye, and he said, just keep looking at it. Aim at it now. Okay? Now close both your eyes and try to hit it. So I'm going to aim at the bullseye. It's there. I'm closing both of my eyes and I'm going. Okay. I hit here. Right? Where is the bullseye? Here. I hit here. He said, fantastic. Another person came. He said, aim at the bullseye and go till that line over there with your eyes open. Okay? Aim at the bullseye. Go to that point there with your eyes open. Then he says, close your eyes and hit the target. So he closed my eyes. Go further. Hey, look at that. Closer to the bullseye. Now he called the third person. He said, aim at the bullseye. Okay. Open both your eyes and hit it. And Esther ma'am was there. She was the third volunteer. She took it like that. And she did that. That's a fantastic experiment, but he used some technical terms. And he said, he asked the question as to why was the third guy able to hit the target? Because he said that there was continuous feedback. He was looking at it, taking correction, 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 and after a while he can just jump like this and boom. Why? I'll tell you something. The freest people in the world are the people who take regular correction and feedback. That's what I learned yesterday. You see, Jesus said to the disciples who believe, you shall know the what? And the truth shall... I said, what freedom are you talking about? We are Abraham's children and we have been not in bondage to any man. He said, if you are a sinner, then you are a slave to sin. And a slave will not abide in the house forever, but a son. And if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. I tell you something, you know, I learned out incredible lesson yesterday. I said, boy, if I really want to hit the bullseye like pastor was talking to us about on the 31st of, for 31st, one thing I have to subject myself to is constant regular feedback. Negative, not positive. Got that? Everybody? Because only when you have negative feedback, you take what? Exactly, you see? Otherwise, you'll never take correction. But on that is where the ox is. You see, ox is the one who's constantly strong. It's powerful. It can literally mouth if you want. I mean, it can kill, kill the guy who's who's trying to control it. But you know what? It learns one thing. If I really want to be effective... I better submit myself to my master. How many of us really want to hit the bullseye this year? Don't have to show your hands. You see, that's the reason Paul said, I don't box like the one beating there. I'm not aimless. This is something which I do. You know what I do? I beat my body and bring it to subjection. So that after having preached to others, I myself will should not be disqualified. I can I can, can come under strict, constant, regular correction. You see, this is very important for us all. For us all. Therefore, a donkey is the this one guy who will never take correction. And you know who was called a donkey in the Bible? How many of you know it? His name is okay. Let's see Genesis chapter sixteen. And the angel of the Lord, this is, came to Hagar. 
angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. You know what the word Ishmael means? God will hear. That's what it means. Ironically. You know what it means? God will hear him, but he will never hear God. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And then he says, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And in each one of us, there is one wild donkey of a man. Jeremiah kind of exposits, what what does this attitude of a wild donkey mean? Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 24. A wild donkey used to the wilderness, inner heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves in her month, they will find her. You know what this means? The word used to comes, the word used comes from the uh, from the Hebrew word limud, which means discipline. It's a wild donkey disciplined to the wilderness. In other words, it's so disciplined in its indiscipline that it has, if it has to commit a sin, it doesn't have to plan. It automatically happens. That's exactly our flesh, isn't it? Ishmael stands for our flesh. You don't get up in the morning and plan to lie. How many plan to lie? Get up in the morning. Today I should lie. You never say that. It automatically happens because your your old man, which stands for Ishmael, the flesh is disciplined to sin. How many of you get up in the morning? I should get angry. How many of you do that? No, no, no. It automatically happens by default. When, who can restrain her? None who seek her need to weary themselves. In the month, they will find her. See? Therefore, God says, don't be unequally yoked with a donkey. And who's that donkey? In each one of us, there is a donkey. Galatians chapter 4, we'll talk about this Ishmael. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free man, free woman. Kill the flesh every day, in other words. But how do we do it? How do we constantly do it? So, and he goes on to say, so we brothers, we are not the children of the slave, but of the free. In other words, we were Isaac. And Isaac is one guy, you'll see that he never gave any problem to his father. Okay, when he was young, you know, he was close to 30 years old. When father took him to the mountain, he said, father, the wood is there, the fire is there, where is the sacrifice? God will provide. No questions asked. Shut up and plow. Goes up the mountain. Okay, and they put him on the altar. And I mean, the altar is made and uh, he possibly again asks his father, where is the sacrifice? He says, you are the sacrifice. Does he argue with his father? No. No fight, nothing. No struggle at all. Absolute obedience. Until he is 40 years old. His father gets him a bride, he doesn't even argue. Okay, so how do we do that? So we'll talk about six, five characteristics. Out of five, we'll look at three today. Second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers What fellowship has Righteousness with lawlessness What communion has Light with darkness What accord has Christ with Belial What part has believer with an unbeliever And Temple of God with Idols Look at one aspect Today first aspect Righteousness with lawlessness What does it mean? What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Question? Am I increasing in lawlessness or am I I increasing in righteousness every day of my life? These two terms, righteousness and lawlessness, come explicitly in one passage in the Bible. It's found in Romans chapter 6. It says, I speak to you in human terms. This is verse 19 onwards. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. This is in the ESV translation. For just as you presented your members as slave to uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, 
So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. What is the motive? How do you present your members as slaves of righteousness and not to lawlessness? Look at what he says. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. For what fruit did you have in those things which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. One of the things to know that you are increasing in lawlessness and, I am sorry, increasing in righteousness and not in lawlessness. One of the things that you know, you are aware of the things that you did in your past and you are not now ashamed of it. And I, I, I know the st- uh, a story of, uh, not the story, this is uh, Augustine in his books, book called Reflections. This man, Augustine, was a perpetual repenter. He repented all the days of his life. In one of his uh, uh, chapters on reflections, he says, he asked God to forgive him. He says, Lord, what a wretched sinner I am. He's thinking about his past. What a wretched sinner I am. What happened? Augustine, when I was a boy, I was going by the field of my neighbor and I saw some fruit on his, on the tree of my neighbor's vineyard. I actually didn't like the fruit. I went, I stole the fruit and my neighbor did not know it. And I came back. I actually did not eat the fruit. I threw it. I just drew pleasure from the fact that I stole from my neighbor. And he says, Lord, I'm such a sinner. Please forgive me. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. You see, one of the things that we, with the reason why we don't progress in our walk with the Lord, we... We are not really ashamed of our past. We're not. Sufficiently ashamed of our past. Somebody comes and asks your testimony. Share your testimony, brother. What were you in the past? Baba, not worth mentioning. Nothing good. So many things if I tell, you will be ashamed. I will be ashamed. I will be embarrassed. I don't even want to say. And he says, those things you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. See, we need to have a proper relationship with our past. Like the way Apostle Paul had. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I am the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Every time he knows he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent man. He's He remembers his past and he's therefore forever grateful. But you know what happens? He does not allow the failures of the past to determine his present. You know what he says? But the grace of God. That's the song that we heard. The last. Who can take away my shame? You You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You can only pick me up from the grave. You see? Grace of God, I am what I am by His, but His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than ye, than all, yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. You see, he had a proper relationship with his past. He was ashamed of the things of his past, but he never allowed that to stop him. But you know what? He had a positive relationship. He said, Lord, I was like that, but from now on, Lord, I will praise you. How was he able to get rid of that? How was he able to get rid of that guilt? And be positively ashamed of his past? You see, it is only possible when you are a believer. You're, it is only possible when you are a believer. Otherwise, it is not possible. That's the reason it says godly sorrow leaves no regret. It leads to repentance, not regret. I mean, when I was growing up, I read a story in my prose lesson in English. The title of the of the lesson was "Stench of Kerosene." How many of you know that story? "Stench of Kerosene." Okay, okay, the sister knows it. Okay, fantastic. So that means you are all contemporaries. I don't, I don't know. This is a story about this uh, about this Sikh S I K H Sikh, not S I C K Sikh okay, Sardarji. It's a story in Punjab. It's written in English. Um. This uh, Sikh guy or this Sardar falls in love with this Punjabi girl, rich Punjabi girl. And he wants to marry her. Very nice, eligible bachelor. Okay, Very nice, eligible bachelor. He falls in love with this girl. He wants to marry her. He takes the proposal to his mother. 
And those days, they have to give the hedge, not the the other way. The bridegroom has to give the bride's family and, you know, get the bride to themselves. So, the mother says, can we afford the the dowry and you know the father of the bride says I am a rich I don't need I know I, I know your son is an eligible bachelor you I can, my daughter cannot get a better better husband than him and they get married and they are absolutely fabulously in love with each other every year this girl she goes back to her village for a particular festival she goes to her maike spends some time there and she comes back home His hus- her husband doesn't accompany her but during that time, you know, he longs for her to come back. But, uh, and during these seven years passed by, they don't have children. And uh, the husband's mother, she says, you know what? Seven years, I'm going to wait. Seven years, I'm going to wait. If she doesn't conceive, the next year, I'm going to get my, my son married to another girl. And this guy, he's his mother's pet and he cannot argue with his mother. So the seventh year comes, she has not conceived and now she has to go to her Maike and he knows his mother is already plotting but he cannot stop his mother. So he begs his wife, he says, please don't go. Please don't go, please don't go, please don't go. And she says, why are you saying I should not go? I'm just going to go, come back. And he walks with her, goes halfway and he leaves her and he's weeping and crying. And she looks at him and says, why are you crying? But he doesn't tell her that his husband, that his mother has been plotting and planning behind his back. So anyways, she goes and he comes back home and the mother argues with the son and he says, in our culture it is like this. And she pays 500 rupees to another girl, gets him married to her, to her married to him. And he says, have a child. And the news of the second marriage reaches his first wife. And she is heartbroken. And I know what she does. In her desperation, she takes kerosene and she puts on, puts on herself and she burns herself to death. In the meantime, this guy gets married. The second wife conceives. The news of the death of the first wife comes to him, comes to him and he is completely overwhelmed with guilt and shame. Weeping and weeping and weeping and he's absolutely depressed and his second wife is so mad at him and she goes and complains, whom did I get married to? Who's this guy? He doesn't even look at me. What has happened? And the mother says, don't worry. Once the baby comes, everything will be alright. Once the baby comes, everything will be alright. Once the baby comes, everything will be alright. Nine months pass by. The baby boy is born and this guy is still depressed and she goes and says, why is my husband still depressed? And the mother says, bathe the baby, put on some nice clothes, you know, give her a nice wash, give it a nice wash and put it in front of him and he will melt. So, bathe the baby, they just put some fresh clothes and they bring it and put it in front of this guy who's weeping and mourning and he looks at the son and he says, take him away, take him away. He stinks of kerosene. And you know what? The story ends there. I was possibly in my sixth or seventh grade. I'm not sure which, which grade the story was written. It had a profound impact on my life. I, was, I never forgot that story. You know, many of us In our walk with the Lord, we have made a mess of our past. And our past stinks. But thank God, where the hope for that guilty man ends, in Christ there is hope. In Christ there is hope. He is able to wash you away from your guilt. He is able to give you a fresh start. If you really repent of your sin. You know, those people, and I, I thought, you know, it's a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic story of a guy who's actually has some convictions. His conscience is bothering him, but he can never reconcile his conscience because he has done something for which there is no remedy. But you know what? For us, he's ashamed of it. For us, you know, Paul says, you know what? I was guilty of the death of Stephen. Oh boy. I was guilty of that. But you know what? What a transformation took in this man. 
that his conscience is completely taken away. And now he's absolutely on fire for God. You know why? Because he had a proper relationship with shame. And that shame can be taken only taken away only in Christ. And then you know what? He's able to give himself more and more to righteousness and not lawlessness. That is the reason why it says, but Romans chapter 6 verse 22, but now having been set free from sin, ah, and having become slaves to God, you have fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? David was the reason for the death of his son. But he makes a very powerful statement. You know what he says? I will not see, I mean, he cannot come to me now, but I will go to him. Remember the story of Job, right? At the end of the story, Job has multiplied possessions. Twice the number of oxen, twice the number of sheep, twice the number of property, twice everything except what? Children, only seven again. Why? Already seven are there in heaven. Only we have hope and only we can have a proper relationship with our past. Yes, we will be, we'll have regrets and say, Lord, I wish I didn't do, didn't do it. Do, do, do you think Paul did not think, or I wish I was not there <laughs> when Stephen was being stoned? You would have thought several times, Lord, it's because of me, Lord. Because of me, Lord. Because of me, Lord. But thank God, in Christ, you can have a proper relationship with your past. Amen? Okay, so let's go to the next point. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Again, righteousness and lawlessness. I'll tell you something. If you're increasing in lawlessness, I mean righteousness, it means you have a real, real positive relationship with your past. And therefore, you don't know what you're saying, Lord, no longer, Lord. I don't want to do. You give me a second chance. You know, God is not a God of just second chance. He's God of nth chance, n is equal to infinity. Okay. Right? Hapsiba? See, she also she understands math now. Okay. See, God is a God of chances. He gives more. Why? Why does he do it? You know why? The more he gives us those chances, the more he's giving us opportunities to love him. Okay. Then, what communion has light with darkness? What is this characteristic all about? Romans chapter 13. Look at what it says. And do this knowing the time that it is high time to awake out of the sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. And this is Paul writing in AD 40, maybe, I don't know, 40 or 50. If the salvation was very near, how much more for you and I? The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, not in drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. What does this mean? Knowing the time. It is high time. What is the principle he's talking about here? First Peter chapter 4. We'll explain this in more detail. Therefore, since Christ suffered uh, suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live his rest, the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices in doing what the Gentiles wanted to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, etc. Oh, John Piper in his commentary, I mean, he had a, a lab in um, on First Peter chapter 4. He says, he made a very interesting comment. The time that is past suffices in doing what the Gentiles wanted to do. And he made a very interesting statement. He said, let's say a guy who has lived for 60 years, he gets saved when he is 40. Okay. 40 years were suffi- was sufficient for him. To spend his life in sensuality, passions, etc., etc., etc. So 40-year man would say, yeah, absolutely, 40 years, I've messed up my life. At least for the next 20 years, let me live for God. And he reduces it. Let us say, assume a guy got saved when he's 20. Okay. 20 years of his life, it was sufficient for him to drink, to live in what? In sensuality, in passions, in drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, etc., etc., etc. 
Oh, he says he reduces the demon more. He says, let us say a guy gets saved at 10 years. How many of you are 10 years old here? Less than 10? 10? Less than 10? Okay, Jacinth, Abigail, some, some, some children are there. Less than 10. 10. Let's say you get saved when you are, you are 15? How old are you? 11 years? Okay. How many of you are 11 and under? Or more? 15, 15 and 11. So show me your hands. Oh, very, quite a number of children. Ajay? Nugurakala? 12. Okay. Lift your hands then. In the air. Just one, big deal. Okay, 12 years he has lived, let's say at the age of 12 he gets saved. Or the age of 11 she gets saved. You know what John Piper says? 11 years were sufficient for her to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, drinking orgies, etc, etc, etc. Now he reduces it. He says, if a guy gets saved when he is, you know what he says? 5 years was sufficient for him to live in sensuality, Passions, drunkenness, drinking orgies. As a five-year-old child doesn't even know. My, my daughter is looking at me like this. Okay. And a five-year-old doesn't even know what is drinking parties, drinking or She doesn't have a clue. But you know what God sees the end from the beginning. He says, if I don't save this fellow at five, gone. You got it? If I don't save this fellow at ten, gone. If I... You see... Do you have this attitude? I was listening to Art Cat sometime, sometime back. He has a sermon preached on Psalm 51. The title of the sermon is Psalm 51. And he reads the psalm and he says the first heading is when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote this psalm and he sang this psalm and he prayed. And he says, how many of you pray this psalm regularly? And then he asks this question. Why don't you pray? Are you waiting to commit adultery? So that you can pray? Or do you think that you have spent sufficient time in your flesh in living in drunkenness, in parties and orgies, etc., etc., that you want to give the rest of life, rest of your time for God? So what is the principle that God is trying to, pray, trying to say here? It's found actually in uh, John's Gospel chapter 9, verse 4. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in this world, I am the light of the world. Meaning, there's a time for you to come out of darkness and into light and there is what we call a sense of urgency. The more you are in the light, the more there is a sense of urgency in each one of us to get out from the things of this world. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and now you know what is, what is restraining that he may be revealed in his, in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who has now restraints will do so until he is taken out of the way. And slowly the Holy Spirit is going to be lifted and after that there is no more time to repent. There is no more time to come out of dark, darkness and into light. And if you are really walking in the light there is a sense of urgency in each one of us. Do you have the sense of urgency? Question. Or do you take the chances that God gives us for granted? Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse uh, 1 onwards. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says in an acceptable time I have heard you and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, what? Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Psalm 32. For I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hid. Look at this. I have not hidden. I have exposed it. Why? I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Pause. Why? For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. There is a time. Set time. And everyone who is really, really walking in the light, there is a sense of urgency. That's what Paul, Pastor was talk, talking to us on, on, on Sunday. He said, there's not enough time for you to grow. He told uh, Joanna and Joanna and Pastor, Dave, Pastor Eric, you have to grow fast. 
You can't say, let me relax and take it easy and let me wait. Vijay uncle enjoyed for 25 years of his life. Now he is asking me to repent when I am only 11 years old. What nonsense. Let me enjoy. Don't do that. Oh, you accepted the Lord when you were 30 years old, right? So you are asking me to do it right now? You came into full-time ministry when you were 33 years old, right? You are asking me to do it right now? Let me also. There's no guarantees in the kingdom of God. I remember when pastor told me, uh, I was fighting this. Should I come to the, come to full-time ministry or not? And I said, Lord, four months. What did I say? Four months. Lord, give me just four months. And I was reading John's Gospel chapter 4 that day in my daily readings. And I came to verse 34. And it says, don't say it, it is four months. And then the harvest. And when I read that, I closed the Bible. And I came to pastor and I said, pastor, I asked God for four months and this is the verse that I read. What does it mean? No. As if I know it. No brainer. No. I was hoping that he will give me another interpretation. And he looked at me and he said, Vijay, you don't accept the call of God now. God will bypass you and file somebody else. Do you want that? Now is the accent. Today, if you hear his voice. You see, one of the things that we know that we are children of the light is when we have an attitude of urgency to get rid of remaining sin in each one of our lives. Not saying, Lord, there's no procrastination. Today, Lord, today I want to change. Why? Acts chapter 19. Actually, not 19, 17. Sorry. Correction, Acts chapter 17, verse 30 onwards. Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. You see, this is one day, one appointment as we heard, that we will never miss one appointment which is guaranteed in each one of our lives. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man who has, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. And what happens when he preaches this? And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Time here. Chillax. Some said, we will hear some other time. And that time may never come again. I remember Derek Prince in one of his deliverance sessions, he called this it was this young man who came into the deliverance meeting and uh, his his family brought him and really being tormented and oppressed by demons. And uh, he came and uh, there was an incredible prayer going on, everybody praising and worshipping. There was a lot of noise. A guy got a little irritated and he told Derek Prince, I'm leaving. I can't tolerate this noise. And Derek Prince told him, he said, he said, he said son, if you go out this time, you will take all the demons along with you. And again, you may not have the time in your life to get rid of this. Stay. Stay. He stayed. God delivered. Just think about, think about it, no? If you are all gone. You think he can take God for granted and you'll think he'll have another chance? No. Question, do you, is there a sense of urgency in each one of our lives? Sense of urgency. Lord. I'm not saying that you should hurry things up. No, 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 no. But when it comes to obedience, is it quick? Is a question. Next. Do not be unequally yoked. And the third thing I want to look at, look at was what accord has Christ with Belial? Accord. The word accord comes from the word symphonio, from which we get the word symphony. Okay? Symphony, okay? You know, you, you see when you have uh, some people doing the offertory or doing a song in parts. Okay, different parts they do. Some alto, some soprano, some etc. And you have one highly trained musician sitting in the audience. And these people are singing in parts and some people are almost there. Okay. If some people, one, one, guy, one guy is almost singing at alto, one guy is almost singing at tenor and the soprano is going normal. Okay. 
And then you see the face of this well-trained musician. He'll be like this. And he's like, oh, he's cringing in his, in his, he's wincing in his seat. He's trying to pull that fellow who's singing at a different <laughs> pitch. Oh, hoping that somehow by him doing this, that fellow will start singing in, in his symphony. You see. So I caught this equation. Almost sense of symphony is equal to cacophony. So either you can be harmonics or you can be cacophonics. That is what we call, you know, if you read Asterix, you know what I'm talking about. The cacophonics, the bard. He's too... <laughs> okay. So I, I, I'll tell you something. This is what he's talking about. That is accord. That is agreeing in the Bible. And he says, what agreement has Christ with Belial? What is Belial? What does the word Belial mean? The word Belial means a worthless fellow. And if you read through the New Test- uh, Old Testament, you'll get an understanding of what this Belial actually means. Look at Proverbs chapter 6 and the Belial is very interestingly and very vividly explained. This is found in Proverbs chapter 6 verse 12 onwards. A worthless person or the Belial, okay, a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles with his feet. He points with his Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. And what does he do? Look at this. He was was no harmony. There is no accord, but there is what? Discord. He sows discord among brothers. He comes and sows discord in the church. He comes and he 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 tries to uh, you know make two brothers against each other or Tries to come and sow discord in the family. He sows discord, therefore his calamity shall come suddenly, suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. What does it mean? What does it mean? A guy who is absolutely deceptive in his ways. Very deceptive. Very subtle. Another place. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 27. Again, Belial. An ungodly man or a Belial, digs up evil. And it is on his lips like a burning fire. That means he cannot just keep it to himself. He has to keep on digging somebody else's life. Another, another translation, this is the ESV. A worthless man plots evil. His speech is like a scorching fire. The New Living Translation, scoundrels create trouble. Okay. Their words are a destructive blaze. Another place, Proverbs again, explains the uh, spirit of Belial. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 28. A disreputable witness or a son of Belial scorns justice and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. A worthless witness, a corrupt witness makes a mockery of justice. That's exactly what happens. When Ahab wants the vineyard of Naboth, what does, what does Jezebel do? Get a few sons of Belial. Sows discord. And that, and he says, what discord has Christ with Belial? Have you ever seen Christ speaking like that? So in discord? You see? Hebrews chapter 1. This is what about this, about Christ. This is what it says. But to the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness more than your companions. He always had a disciplined mouth. He loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. And God always gave him a tongue which is disciplined, always speaks good about others, positive about others. And he says, how can a guy who is in Christ have anything to do with Belial, who sows discord? You see, there is power in agreement. Especially in families where husband and wife are believers. In accord, in symphony, in agreement, the same word. Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Assuredly I say to you, whatever you... Bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two, he doesn't say two or three. You see that? He says, how many? Two. 
husband and wife, if two agree, symphonize, whatever you say will be done and think about two guys who symphonize like that. Paul and Silas in the prison in one accord, worshipping and what happened, resonance took place in the heavenly realms. That's what happens. Agree. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of it. That is the reason why Paul will say, I plead with you brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together, the same mind in the same judgment, judgment which is based absolutely upon truth. Agree, unite, strive together, in your families and in the church. That is exactly the reason why we continuously, constantly keep speaking the word of God from this pulpit, to admonish you and to bring you back to the unity of truth. In essentials, in every essential doctrine, there should be unity. It does not mean that we will always agree on everything. Now, there's a principle, there's Chuck Missler who quoted this, he says, in essentials, what? Unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That is the principle. In essentials, in fundamentals, absolute, no compromise, no negotiations at all. In non-essentials, liberty. What is the non-essential? Should the offering be taken before the sermon or after the sermon? Non-essential. In GTC Jamshedpur, by the way, they take the offering at the end of the sermon. In GTC Hyderabad, they take the offering in the beginning of the sermon and I will not, pastor will not tell Eric and say, Eric, in GTC it is like this. Always take the offering before the sermon, otherwise people will leave. Okay, he never said that, right? He said, that is a non-essential. Liberty. But when it comes to the pulpit, Eric, he says, you know what, Eric, watch your life, watch your doctrine. By that way, you will save yourself and also those who hear, rightly divide the word of truth. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not be ashamed. That's what he will tell every pastor. But in non-essentials, Okay, fine, not a problem. Should we have uh, the midweek service on Wednesday or on Tuesday? It depends upon what your congregation. Because just because you're from GDC, Hyderabad, because we have a midweek service on Wednesday, you should also not have it on Wednesday. No, 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 no. Decide. That is non-essential. But in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Otherwise, You see, when you compromise on the non-essentials and you agree, there is danger. This is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 5. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Who? Who is this? Anybody? Ananias and Sapphira, they also agreed. Symphonized in a lie. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. There is incredible power and agreement, my dear brothers and sisters. And that is what we are looking at in our church over a period of time so that you will constantly, constantly come to agreeing. Look at three things. What fellowship has? Righteousness with lawlessness. Light with darkness. Christ with Belial. Three things. I'll stop here. I'm just asking you, how many of us have, this is what we know, the guy who's increasing in righteousness, who's increasing in light, who's increasing in Christ. That is an ox. The other side is a donkey. How many of us have the ox, at least to this level, At different levels, we are all progressing, but one thing is our attitude, our inclination toward that. It is there or not. is something which we need to ask ourselves. We are not perfect. We will never become perfect in this life. Perfection is only the other, but we are pressing on toward it. This one thing we do, forget that which is in the past, but we press on, press on, and keep pressing on. Let's pray. We will continue, Lord willing, on this. Father, we thank you, Father. 
Pray, Father, that, Lord, what we have learned here and what has been taught by your Spirit, what is of you, Lord, will remain. And what is of man will fall to the ground. But let it bear fruit in our lives. Let it bear fruit in our lives, O Lord. Let it cause us, O Lord, Father, to desire you more and more and more in the days to come. That, Lord, that we will have the spirit of an ox. You said, Lord, my yoke is light. And my burden is light, my yoke is easy. Come, take my yoke upon yourself and learn. And give us a spirit to learn. Just as your son learned. He learned obedience. He learned discipline. Through the things that he suffered. Through the things that he experienced. But he never rebelled. Yeah, incredible power. But that power, O oh Lord, was completely under the control of his heavenly father. And you said, Lord, tarry until you receive power. For that you will be my witnesses. Father, you're looking for vessels so that you can endow each one of them with power. But you also are looking at vessels who will be under control, who will be like an ox, who will use that power and be absolutely under the submission of the Spirit of God and of Christ in their lives. Teach us, we pray, to be more and more in the days to come like an ox and not like a donkey. We thank you, Father, we praise you. We give you all the glory, honor and praise for this time. Jesus name. Amen.